0: Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Paul Whitko, VP of Education of the Marketing Association at Johnson and the Executive Producer of the Present Value podcast. Today, I am pleased to introduce this episode with Professor Caitlin Woolley, an assistant professor of marketing at the Johnson Graduate School of Management. A rising star in the world of marketing, Professor Woolley has had her research covered by the New York Times, NPR, and Harvard Business Review. In this episode, Professor Woolley discusses different strategies about how we can stay motivated and achieve our goals. She also discusses the impact of food through a sociological lens and reflects on mentors who have influenced her career. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at presentvaluepod. Welcome to Present Value. I'm your host, Alex Borwald, and today I'm excited to welcome Professor Caitlin Woolley, Clifford H. Whitcomb Faculty Fellow and Co-Director of the Center for Behavioral Economics and Decision Research at the SC Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. Professor Woolley's research has been published in top-tier academic journals including Journal of Consumer Research, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, Psychological Science, and Organizational Behavior and Human Decision Processes. Her work has also received coverage in popular media outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, and NPR. Professor Woolley received a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from our very own Cornell in 2012 and an MBA and PhD in Behavioral Science from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business in 2017. Professor Woolley, thank you so much for joining us today on Present Value.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: So last time, we spoke briefly on how you wanted to stay motivated during the COVID crisis. I wanted to dive a little deeper into this area of your research. Can you first explain to our listeners what this is and tell us how you picked this subject for your research?
1: Sure. So my work is looking at how to harness the sort of situation that you're currently in to try and help motivate yourself. So one thing that I found when I began my graduate program was that you have kind of what's called a self-control conflict, right? There's some long-term goal that you're hoping to achieve, and there's short-term temptations or short-term difficulties that you have to overcome to to get to that long-term goal. And what a lot of the research was saying when I started out was focus on the delayed benefits. Think about, right, if you're getting your MBA, think about, your job prospects after you're graduating, right? If you're trying to start a new exercise program, think about how it'll be to be in shape later on or to feel stronger, right? To have a healthier heart, all these sort of delayed benefits. But what I found in my initial research was actually that the current situation that you're in really matters much more to people than the delayed outcome that they're striving for. So if you are, if you're trying to study for class, thinking about the importance of getting an A or thinking about that job that you might achieve down the road, it's not really going to help you motivate right now. And actually having a situation that's enjoyable, being in the moment, having some sort of benefits that you're able to get right now is really motivating for people. So for example, right with exercising, I think a lot of people will kind of start up a new exercise program and say, right, I'm going to try and just run five miles or, or set some really hard goal for themselves, not necessarily thinking about right? Is this actually something that's sustainable or that's fun or that's interesting or enjoyable for me? But in my work, what I find is that if you're having a better experience, it's actually going to help you to reach those those goals more. And so I think kind of looking back on it, there's maybe this gap between predictors and pursuers, right? When you're setting yourself up for success, you might not think about what actually is going to, you know, what's going to help you get there. And so that's what some of my work has been looking at.
0: It's never too early to start thinking about New Year's goals, but I think we all know these goals are hard to maintain, as on average, 10% of people achieve the goals. What's so hard about meeting our goals?
1: I guess a large part of what I'm focusing on, what I find, is that there is this gap between trying to start a goal and actually being able to follow through on it. So when you're thinking about, right, kind of in the abstract, wanting to set this New Year's resolution right? Wanting to eat healthy, wanting to save more for retirement. You're thinking about really the the final outcome, right? What you can do when you achieve that goal, how it's going to change your life to have retirement savings, right? How it will improve your health if you lose that extra right weight. And what you don't really think about is the day-to-day struggle of actually following through and sticking with your goal. And so we kind of in the abstract neglect the experience of You might actually be tempted in the moment to splurge on some purchase, which is going to distract from your, your savings goal, or you know, eat that brownie, which is going to distract from your diet. And we don't really think about those in the in the when we're kind of making these plans, we kind of neglect that. And so that's why part of what I'm trying to focus on in my work is thinking about right, if we know that there's this gap between setting the goal in the first place and actually being able to follow through and keep up with it, how can we change? the situation that we're in, change our actual experience to help us to better follow through with those goals. Okay, so you can think about a consumer who's going to the the grocery store and, and kind of before they get there, they're like, well, I'm on a diet. I'm going to try and buy healthy food. But then actually when you're trying to go and pick up lunch, you know, you're not really thinking about your health goal potentially. You're hungry, you want kind of whatever is going to be satisfying in the moment. And so there's kind of this mismatch between what we're hoping to achieve and then what we actually feel when we're making those decisions right now.
0: Can you describe the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation?
1: Yeah, so what I've been looking at a lot is this right there's a difference between intrinsic and extrinsic. I've spent a lot of kind of the past few years focusing on these different motivations that people have, so intrinsic motivation is the experience that you have right of pursuing your activity. So I think traditionally people would think about something like kids coloring, right This is like a purely intrinsic activity where. No one's paying them to color. They're freely of their own volition choosing this coloring. Or you can think about maybe now during COVID, a lot of people are doing puzzles. And this is something that's like an intrinsic activity where the benefit is in doing it itself, right? Having fun kind of while you're while you're going through it. But intrinsic motivation can also apply to other situations that we might think of as often extrinsically motivated. So at work, great right, people also have. They get enjoyment from their colleagues, from working with, with other people, pursuing work that's meaningful for them or that's interesting to them. And even right other goals that we have, like exercising or healthy eating, can have intrinsic components. So you might actually enjoy running or have fun listening to music while you're exercising, even though people typically think about exercise as something that might be pursued for what I would say is an extrinsic benefit, which is like the delayed outcome. So extrinsic Benefits, I think we typically consider them something like monetary benefits. So at work, right, having job security, having a job, having salary, but they also can be applied to other other goals as well. So if you think about exercising, the extrinsic benefit would be whatever outcome you're hoping to achieve, be that getting in shape, lowering your cholesterol or improving your cardiovascular health, kind of external benefits that you would get as a result of pursuing those activities. And so what a lot of my work has looked at is kind of this this mismatch. When we think about setting a goal, we often focus on the extrinsic benefit. So thinking about what's the outcome I can achieve. We neglect the actual intrinsic experience, which is a large part of the, kind of the day to day, what's going to get you through and, and get you working towards that goal.
0: That makes complete sense. Of the two, which do you think motivates people more or are they equally weighted?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. So. I think it really does depend on what perspective you're taking. So if you think about it, right, often what prompts us to make change is the desire to achieve those big outcomes, right? So if you're kind of stuck in your job and you're trying to think about, right, I want to switch gears or find different work or, or be able to earn a greater income, you're often motivated by the extrinsic benefits, right? You're trying to get some sort of outcome that you think is going to be desirable. Similarly, with something like New Year's resolutions, right? often what gets people thinking about these or they want, to, they want to make some big change is going to have this large effect. And that's often driven by extrinsic. And so I think when people are planning and setting goals, they're often motivated by those concerns. That's not to say that people aren't motivated by intrinsic motivation in the first place. right? You could think about wanting to change a job because you're, you don't find your work meaningful anymore. And so you do find some people who make these kind of big changes based on intrinsic motivation. But I would say often when we're setting goals, what I found is that the majority of people will just necessarily think about that outcome, that extrinsic change that they're hoping to achieve. But then when you're actually in the middle of the experience, I would say that that's when intrinsic motivation really kicks in. So what I've did in one of my studies was we actually asked people at different stages of goal pursuit, what motivates them. And so this was, done among students who were working out at the gym. We asked them when they were home, right before they had come to the gym, kind of what's important to you? What do you care about? And they would tell us, right, they really were motivated by the outcomes they were hoping to achieve by the workouts, whether that was to be in shape, to lose weight, to kind of get these different end goals, these different extrinsic motives that they were hoping for. And that's what they said was motivating to them. Things like having fun while working out or clearing their mind or more intrinsic experiences that you have during the actual activity, they didn't think that was as important. But then when you actually get to the gym and survey these same participants, that's when they tell you that the experience is really important, right? So it kind of shifts depending on what stage you're in, right? When you're actually working out on the treadmill, whether or not you're enjoying yourself is going to be much more important to you than when you're at home on the couch, right? You kind of make this, you have this sort of empathy gap where you don't realize the importance of the experience when you're not actually in the moment. So I would say that the extrinsic motivation is kind of what gets you to set the goal in the first place. And that's sort of always going to be somewhat important to you. That's what you're hoping to achieve. Intrinsic motivation kind of has this shift over time where when you're actually in the middle of of goal pursuit, that's when it's going to be most impactful and, and important for you and motivating for you.
0: In your research, you talk about this concept of being in pursuit and out of pursuit. How might marketers be able to take advantage of the difference between the two?
1: Yeah, so I think that this is something marketers are kind of constantly struggling with and you hear this. I've talked to very different groups like I was talking with someone who's working at Chobani who was trying to figure out the sort of disconnect between consumers will tell you one thing that they want, but then their purchases might not align with what they're telling you. Right? So they were often getting the message, "Oh, we want healthier food, right? We care about no sugar, right? We want to have high protein foods. But then in the store, it wasn't kind of translating into actual purchase behavior. So I think this kind of taps into this inside-outside pursuit distinction. When consumers are maybe at home writing a grocery list, right? They're they're trying to, they kind of have this more abstract mindset. They're a little bit, they're not like maybe immediately hungry. They're kind of able to take a step back and think about these more long-term goals that they have. And that's when they're saying, oh yeah, we want to eat healthily, we want right lower sugar foods. But then actually at point of purchase, you don't always see that corresponding, right? So sometimes um, I guess what they would find was that people would be buying the sort of sugary like YoPlay yogurts or or foods that had like the Oreo crunch in it. And so you get this disconnect between what, student, what consumers are saying they want and what they're actually purchasing. So I think it's a little bit tricky, I think, because it depends what you kind of what your goal is, right? So if you're a marketer, you maybe want to be selling your product? And so if people are telling you one thing, but buying another, does that mean that you're going to then just produce the thing that they're buying, even if it's going to be working against their long-term goals? Or are you going to try and help people by making some sort of product that fits into what their long-term goal is, even if they're kind of conflicted themselves? So I think this is interesting. I saw this with Snickers where they were trying to sell a candy bar that was also advertised as being high protein, right? And I think this is a struggle that struggle that marketers are facing because they're trying to help consumers reach these like health goals that they have, but also realize that they still have these, they want to enact temptation and they do want to have like, sugary products at, at times. One thing in my work that I can speak to is if people are wanting to be healthy, one thing that you can do is try and make that easier for them or something that's going to be something that they can kind of follow through on. So for one of my studies we did, we had people make choices between different types of healthy foods, and we had them either focus on the healthy component of the food or on the taste component. So this was with foods that are healthy, but also tasty, like apples or carrots. So things that people say that they like to eat. So in these consumption experiences, right, when you're actually eating healthy food, focusing on the taste was helping people to eat more of the food. Right, If they liked liked it more, they thought that it tasted good, they would eat more apples or more carrots. It doesn't really quite work when the healthy food isn't tasty, right? So this might work with something like apples or carrots, but with spinach, we found something that you're eating kind of raw that doesn't taste good. Focusing on the taste didn't actually help with consumption. And so I think you can think about situations, right, or kind of encourage consumers to focus on the internal benefits that they might be getting from food consumption in the moment to help kind of encourage them to enact those goals that they might have it's a hard question it's a hard problem to solve
0: yeah i think you brought up several points but one that stuck out to me was there potentially is an ethical component behind this is there any thoughts around how marketers should try to approach it
1: yeah so i think what we try and teach in the the marketing core and what i Personally, I think is most effective is to really try and give value to the consumers, right? So I think if you are just trying to set, kind of sell the most of whatever product it is and kind of squeeze consumers, it's not going to work in terms of the the long term. If you can provide some value to the consumers that they are going to be able to respond to, like if consumers want to make healthy choices and you're able to find a way to kind of help them reach the, their goals. I think it'll be more successful. And you kind of see companies shifting this way a little bit, even. There's like a huge trend where consumers are drinking less sugary right, sugary drinks, and companies are responding, right? You see this influx of carbonated soda water that has less sugar, and it's kind of meeting that and trying to match that demand. So rather than try and continue to push the sugary beverages or try and encourage consumers to drink those, they're trying to follow this maybe shift in the in consumer trends. That's not to say that right all companies are doing that, but I've seen that and talked to some, right. I've, I've talked to some people at Pepsi who are kind of following this. And even outside of health, thinking about this from an environmental perspective, I think a big concern that marketers are thinking about right now is like packaging. And so how can they help consumers meet their recycling goals or their environmental goals by providing them Still with the products that they want, but in ways that are more sustainable. And so I think that's kind of the way to to set up for more long-term success by thinking about how can we kind of match these needs rather than capitalize on them or, or try and push them one way that would be kind of most effective for our company.
0: In previous conversations, you commented you're a proponent of temptation butling. Why are you a proponent of this and what is it?
1: So this really, I think, stuck out to me because it's something that I find a lot of value in myself. And so the idea behind temptation bundling is that you can take an activity that you would call a virtue, and you can take an activity that you might call a vice, and you can combine them together, and that's actually going to make you enjoy engaging in the vice behavior more and also enjoy engaging in the virtue behavior more. So the typical example, this is coming from Katie Milkman's research at Wharton, was to have students who are working out at the gym listen to what she called tempting audio novels. So this would be something like The Hunger Games, where maybe, you know, if you're a student, you should probably be studying calculus or whatever, but you want to read The Hunger Games. And so if you combine that with exercising, then it makes you feel good about engaging in this maybe less virtuous behavior, which is like listening to The Hunger Games instead of potentially studying. It also makes the actual experience of working out on the treadmill more enjoyable, right? So you've kind of combined these two together. So I've done some work on this as well, not necessarily with like the vice virtue bundling, but in thinking about how can we craft situations to set people up for success. So one study I did was actually at a high school in Florida. We went down there and tried to help students really stick with their math work, right? Math is something that's kind of it's hard to make math fun for someone who doesn't enjoy math in the first place. And so one idea that we had was that we were going to bring in fun colored pens, bring in snacks, um, get the, the teachers to play music that the kids liked. And this might seem really distracting, but what we found was that it actually helped students to stick with what they were doing. They were less likely to give up because they kind of had this fun experience that they were engaging in at the same time that they were doing this kind of drudgery of, of math. And so I think you could use this in a lot, a lot of ways in your own life, right? You can fold the laundry while watching the Kardashians. You can try and work out with a friend, right? Find ways to create these bundles for yourself to try and help motivate you.
0: I used to be an avid powerlifter and I've struggled to stay motivated. Think about your personal life. How have you applied your research in your own life?
1: I'm always trying to use my research in my own life, right, to the extent that I study goals and motivation and I think that I'm trying to find ways to help other people and I try and use it myself too. So like the one thing that I found from this work where you're adding an immediate reward to a long-term goal, like I would right on the treadmill, watch music videos instead of like I used to try and so I guess I should say in graduate school, I would try and work out and read journal articles at the same time, which is like kind of combining two virtuous activities together that didn't really work. It wasn't fun to read the articles while I'm like on the treadmill. And then being on the treadmill wasn't fun trying to read these journal articles. So now what I'll do is I will try and watch something on Netflix while I'm working out or watch music videos, um, which I think it's more fun. And also it gets you, you're working out more, right? Because if you're trying to read a an article while working out, it's not really going to be, you're not going to be going very quickly. To your point though, about the powerlifting, one of the, the projects I'm working on now is trying to think about how can we take pain and get motivation from that? And I, I think that we've talked about this in a prior conversation, but one of the things that I was looking at with this was in the context of improvisation and social pain while performing improv exercises, feeling of embarrassment or awkwardness or discomfort. Can you actually use this pain that you're experiencing as a cue that you're making progress right and if you're focusing on that as sort of the the goal that you're hoping to achieve can that be motivating for you and so i think what i'm trying to do in my work is find even situations where it might not seem like you can improve on them or right make the experience better like are there other cues in the environment you can use as a way to to help to motivate yourself
0: i just want to transition a little bit to another area of your research information avoidance you wrote a paper titled Closing Your Eyes to Follow Your Heart, which is a reference to information avoidance. Can you define this term and explain why we would seek to avoid information, especially in a world where we are inundated with it?
1: I think that this is exactly kind of why information avoidance is a really interesting area to study because, on the one hand, we are inundated with information every day and we often get a lot of utility from information, right? It can help us make decisions, it can satisfy curiosity. But at the same time, you actually see a trend. In consumer research and in consumer behavior in general, where people want less information, so we're now seeing things like curated sets, right, or kind of simplistic, minimalistic designs where information is being stripped out of things. And I think this is because consumers are kind of reacting to having too much information on their hands, and they they want to be able to make simple decisions. In my work, what I've looked at is what I would call a conflict between following your your head and following your heart. So sometimes we think it's often rational to get information. And so your head would want to learn information in order to make a more informed decision. But in certain situations, sometimes you just don't want to know, right? And I think we can kind of all experience this in the current situation, right? Sometimes we just don't want to read the news. We don't want to get information about what's going on. So in my work, I study this in the context of goal pursuit because that's sort of the the research area that I'm in. And you can think about lots of situations where you might not want information when you're pursuing your goals, which is kind of counterintuitive. If you're trying to eat healthily, you might not want to know how many calories are in the brownie, right? That might be something that you don't want to tell yourself because you actually want to eat the brownie. And so we have this kind of internal conflict between we're trying to enact a certain behavior, but we also want to do the exact opposite. And sometimes Avoiding information can be a way that we actually allow ourselves to give into the temptation. So in one study, what we did was we just asked people, do you want to know how many calories are in a cake? And people who want to eat the cake or attempted to eat the cake, they don't want to know how many calories are in the cake, right? They want to avoid that information. But if you tell people how many calories are in the cake, it's going to affect their decision, right? And so you get this kind of interesting situation where people tell you, don't tell me I don't want to know, but once you tell them, they actually use that information. And so people are making a mistake either in avoiding information that they use or in using information that they tell you they don't want to know, right? If I don't want to know the calories in the cake, you tell me that information and then I actually use it to make my decision. I'm making some sort of mistake because I actually would have preferred to act without that information in the first place.
0: Do businesses take advantage of this and deliberately hide information?
1: So one of the projects that I'm working on now is looking at situations when you can kind of help people either to learn information or avoid information. And I think there's lots of information in business practices that consumers might not want to know. And it's it's kind of tricky, especially now, because... You don't want to come off as seen as like hiding information, right? but if you think about so like one example that I like to think about is sometimes when you're making a decision, you don't really want to make the decision involving price. So if you're planning a wedding or buying like an engagement ring, right sometimes these sort of more emotional decisions, you don't think that price should factor into the decision. and so you might then see businesses kind of putting price information somewhere else or hiding that information so that it's not what's driving the decision and so I think as you think about presenting your product, think about how to craft the situation in a way that people are able to make the decision with the information that they think should go into the decision. You still need to provide all aspects of the information to consumers, right? Because con- consumers are really savvy. I think Russell Wiener, when we had him out talking about dominoes for the marketing core, made this point when he's saying it wasn't about information avoidance, but it was about how to provide information to consumers who like the really interested consumers, and I think he talked about these as like Easter eggs, right? So there are some people who are going to want all the information and they might want to kind of go down your website and kind of find different different things that you've put there. But then there're going to be other consumers who don't want don't want to get all that extra inundated with information. and so I think that there's ways now that you can set things up to give information to consumers who really want it without making that kind of the first thing that like everyone sees uh, if they don't want that information in the first place.
0: That's a great point. I want to shift gears a bit here. I know another key area of research is food consumption. In a business context, this is not something we typically hear much about from a psychological perspective. Can you tell us more about how you got started with this and some of your key findings?
1: Sure. So I think it's interesting to think about food consumption from more like a business perspective, because a lot of our interactions with people occur over food. And this is both right in social situations, in business situations. You like come together over a meal with clients to discuss business, right? You You get together with friends to eat food. And so one of the things I was really interested in was how food consumption can affect our relationships with other people and our feeling of connectedness with them. And so I've looked at food consumption in a f- few different ways, one of the ways that you can look at it is, are we actually eating the same food? So if we sit down right over a meal, do we eat the same food? If we're at a conference, right, and we get the buffet, are we actually eating you know, similar food or different food? Which doesn't seem like it should play a role, right? If we're eating together, why does it matter if you're eating what I'm eating? But we know that there's a lot of research on mimicry, on affiliation goals that people use to kind of signal connectedness, so what we found is that when people were eating the same food, even when this wasn't a signal of preference, it was something that was assigned to them, they felt closer to the other person than when they were eating different food. I think about when, when I was on the job market, right, I thought about this, right? do you order the same food as the other person to match what they're eating? You want to do it right in a way that's not obvious. I was actually at a dinner where the two other people that I was with, they, they had the same food and it was this giant fish. And I got like pasta and I felt like very much like I was not <laughs> right, taking part in the experience where they were eating this like giant fish together. So there are a lot of coordination issues, right? Things that go into eating a meal. And we, I think we don't think about it because we're often focused on like the bigger picture perspective of the meeting. But that does influence connectedness and your, actually your ability to coordinate and cooperate with people when you're coming together over food.
0: That makes a great point. And it's great imagery to think about the like, giant fish as well. So what's so special about food? Would I get the same reaction by, say, wearing the same color shirt as another person?
1: Yeah. So this is a question I often get, right? What's special about food? If I'm listening to the same music as someone, if I'm wearing the same shirt as someone, is this going to have a similar effect? And so I think there's two things. One, food, it doesn't necessarily signal a preference. So if i like the same music as somebody else then there probably is a signal that we should be that right? we have the same viewpoint if we have the same like political beliefs right that's actually a cue that i should use to infer that we're going to be closer that i should like you more whereas you know incidental similar food consumption doesn't have that same cue in terms of the the shared shirt color this was something that we were curious about in our research so what we did was we compared photos of people eating the same food or similar food versus photos of people wearing similar colored shirts. And we wanted to see what are the inferences people make about others based on whether they're eating similar food or wearing similar colored shirts, right? Is it this thing that people that are doing the same activity are probably closer? So regardless of whether it's food or or a shirt color, they're gonna be perceived as closer. But we actually found that wasn't the case. So wearing the same kind of colored shirt or same outfit as someone else, people didn't perceive them as closer, but if they were eating the same food, they were perceived as closer you could think about this too. It's getting the same breakfast as someone at a restaurant is maybe not as like, if you're wearing, if you show up to the restaurant, and you guys are wearing the same outfit. It's like a bit uncomfortable. If you get the same food, it's not, it doesn't have the same kind of negative reaction. Um, so I think food is something that we can kind of coordinate on. And it's something that if you think about just like kind of throughout like human history and evolutionary, right, it's something that we come together and we share meals over. And it has, I think a a larger part in terms of, or it plays a larger role in terms of our ability to connect with other people.
0: I think that's a great point. And getting along with people through that shared experience is extremely important. I wonder if people will not get along if they have a different food preference.
1: Yeah. So this is kind of to my, my fish example, when I was out to dinner and everyone, the other two people had fish and I didn't. Right When you're not able to consume like the same food that other people are eating, when you have either because you've ordered something different or because of a food restriction, you probably have a similar experience to what I had, which was I felt kind of left out. And this was in this example, right, they actually had they were doing they had a different experience than I did because of the actual food that they were eating. But you can think about this for people who are lactose intolerant or vegetarian, have a nut allergy, right, when you're coming together over a meal. And there's someone who has a restriction and isn't able to take part in the meal or in the bond, they often have the experience of feeling excluded or left out. And this is one of the, the recent findings that I found in my my research. And part of this happens because people, right, they're not able to take part in the interaction. Like you think, oh, we're all eating together. And so it shouldn't matter what food you have, what food I have, but they actually feel like they can't be a part of the social bond, right? If there's food on the table that they can't eat. Even if it's not something like a tapas style restaurant where they're sharing plates, it's just kind of everyone together. So one of the the ways you can kind of help people, I think we want to make sure that people with food restrictions don't feel kind of left out, don't feel excluded. One of the ways we can do it is to think about, is there a way that we can kind of have similar food? So even if we have our own different types of pizza, right, we're all eating pizza. If we have different sorts of toppings, it doesn't matter. It's kind of thinking about the the category level and having similar food at that level to try and overcome this potential feeling of exclusion from not being able to take part in the meal.
0: That's a great point. You mentioned human history on the aspect of food a moment ago. This research also draws from the fields of anthropology and sociology. What is the significance of having a meal together through this lens?
1: Yeah. So I think it's really interesting to think about historically, right? Like how people would define their own cultures or how they would define in-group, out-groups based on food that they'd eat. And you see this a lot with religion, even now with different tribes and different groups, right? There are some tribes that say like, we eat this certain type of food or we don't eat that certain type of food. And it's it's a signal of group identity, right? What we eat and what we don't. And you can think about even now, if there's food that we wouldn't consider eating, but other cultures eat. And we kind of use this as a way to separate ourselves from other people. So that's what the work on anthropology has looked at. Work on sociology talks about food in terms of commensality, or Like you are what you eat. If you come together over a meal and you're sharing food with others, right? And they're eating the same food as you, then you actually are having the sort of experience where you, you're connected through the actual food. So I, this is what I would kind of wanted to look at in my research in, in psychology. Is this real, right? Is this a a real phenomenon? You can also think like linguistically, the way that we talk about food is often rooted in these feelings of connection. So there's right the word companionship in French combines the word bread. So you think about how we have relationships and like we're using language about food and describing our social interactions, social relationships. Similarly, in Chinese, right, you, you think about cooking and food, these words are used or these sorts of terms are used in talking about friendship. And so I think it's kind of, it's embedded in our society. It's in our language. It's in the way that we communicate with others. And it has an important role in our connectedness and in our ability to, to interact with other people.
0: Okay. So given all this research, what can businesses do to alleviate food worries? And can you define food worries?
1: Yeah. So when I'm talking about people who have food restrictions feeling left out or feeling excluded from the social bond, the reason that we find this occurs is because they have what you're talking about, Alex, these food worries, these food concerns. They're worried that people are going to judge them based on their food preferences. They're worried that they're going to take extra time to decide about what they can or can't eat when they're eating out at a restaurant with others. They have a lot of concerns about whether they're going to be judged based on what they can eat. And when I talk to people about this research, they're sort of surprised by this, right? You have, on one hand, people who are really trying to make accommodations for others who have food restrictions. And so they think, you know, if we say we have gluten-free options or we have vegetarian options that should be accommodating, right, that should make others feel like they're included even if they have these food restrictions. But for someone who has a food restriction, it still feels uncomfortable to have to eat that food, right, to not be able to eat kind of what everyone else is eating. And so I think it's it's a tough situation. And I think it bothers some people more than others, right? For some people, they're going to be okay with it. They understand this is kind of what they're dealing with. For others, it might actually make them feel really uncomfortable. They might avoid social settings because of their inability to eat certain foods. So I think to the extent that you can bring people together in ways that's not always about food, right? If there are other things going on. So it's, you know, maybe food, but other activities as well, or maybe right? Coffee or tea or something where it's less about actual food consumption and something that everyone can kind of take part in. might be easier. What's interesting now is people have like a ton of different food preferences that actually impair the ability to eat over a meal. So if if someone is intermittent fasting, for example, are they just not going to eat when they're out to dinner? And then you can't necessarily accommodate for that, right? Some people are going to have to, you're going to have to work around that somehow. So I don't think there's a, a clear answer for how to to deal with it. But I think being aware that people have this um, experience and maybe having a discussion about it, finding ways to come together over other activities. I think we often turn to things like dinners, coffee hour, happy hour, just because that's right. Food does bring people together, but there are other activities we can do too, right? So sometimes companies will have softball leagues, right? Or other kinds of activities that you can think about. That help. I know Johnson did this with, they did a walk or run with Kevin Halleck. So it's not just right Sage social that you're coming together over food, but there are other activities that people take part in that you can bring together. I also think right now it's an interesting time because I know we've talked about this previously, but when people are having interactions over Zoom, then having food restrictions is becoming less of a problem. So then it doesn't feel like I'm left out I can join the virtual happy hour and I can drink wine or I don't have to drink wine if I don't drink alcohol. And it doesn't seem as big a deal as in face-to-face situations. So I think that's, that's another way potentially that might alleviate some of these food worries.
0: That's a great point and some great examples. For individuals with certain dietary restrictions, whether that be vegetarianism, veganism, or even something like Whole30, and you mentioned intermittent fasting, what are some strategies to reduce individual food worry?
1: One finding that I've, I've had or one experience that I've had is that people who don't have restrictions are sort of surprised by these food worries that people with restrictions have. So it might be even just having this conversation right, and acknowledging people like aren't potentially judging you as much as you might think they are, that like, people are trying to accommodate you and they're, they're not doing it in a way to make you feel uncomfortable. But I think one thing to keep in mind is that this applies to a large group of people So in my work, I found upwards of like 30% of people have some form of food restriction, whether it be an allergy or vegetarian veganism. Um, So this is, I think, to think about it in terms of not your own individual restriction, but that lots of people have this experience and lots of people, even if it's not the exact restriction that you have, deal with this. And so you're less likely or you're less excluded probably than you might think you are. I also think restrictions can bring us together. So if you... Have, if, right, if you're a vegetarian and now you're at a table with other vegetarians, all of a sudden this is like now a bonding experience. I would not throw restrictions under the rug because I think there can be ways and there can be times when they are going to help to connect us. One of the studies that I have is about restrictions during Passover, actually. And so this is kind of to my point earlier about religions defining kind of in group, out group based on what people can or can't eat. And so during Passover, right, people who are observing the holiday can't eat leavened bread. And this is actually connecting them to other people who are Jewish, right? It's not just, obviously, the food restriction. It's also the holiday itself that's connecting people. But in my study, people report feeling closer to others who are are Jewish when they are restricting themselves from eating leavened bread during Passover. At the same time, they feel excluded from others who aren't a part of the religion, right? And so I think, you know, it's not the case that food restrictions are always going to be excluding. Sometimes they can actually make you connected to those who share that restriction as well.
0: So bringing the conversation back to some of your motivations and how you got started, I wanted to ask you, was there a teacher or researcher who had particularly strong influence on your life? What did you learn about teaching or researching
1: from them? So I think, so there's, but there have been right, a lot of people who have been lucky and fortunate enough to work with who have inspired me and who I get a lot of research tips from and also teaching tips. So I would start, I think, with when I was an undergrad, kind of what motivated me to study psychology in the first place was my psychology professor who was at Cornell, and she's still here. And that's kind of what got me into goal pursuit and motivation in the first place, was that she was interested in studying this and researching kind of the implicit attitudes towards motivation. I'd say my advisor, Islet Fishbach, when I got to grad school, I worked very closely with her. And from, from working with her, I learned how to... I think one, ask interesting questions. There's a lot of, of research that people, right? There's, there's lots of research that's done. And I think if you can think about the question in terms of what's surprising, what's interesting, what's counterintuitive, that's a way to make people more engaged and more interested in your work. And I think I've, I've learned that from her as well as studying real behavioral outcomes, right? So thinking about not just asking people, are you motivated to exercise, but actually going to the gym and measuring how long people are working out for. Also in grad school, I got to work with Jane Risen, who is, she got her PhD at Cornell too. So she's another Cornellian. And having, I think, both of those faculty members as advisors was interesting because you get to learn different things from different people. And so people, they have different styles, different ways of thinking. And you can see that, I think, coming through in the different papers that I have with them. In terms of teaching too, I also TA'd for for them. And I took actually one of Jane's classes on decision-making and learned a lot from from her in terms of how to think about structuring my own classes and how to, to set things up, I think, to make things, you know, trying to make things more interesting, exciting for students and getting them involved in, right, different class activities and case activities.
0: And really great points. And lastly, before we go, when I took your class, we analyzed the case for the now defunct company Brandless. Our class really enjoyed how timely and relevant the case ended up being. To give our listeners a look behind the curtain and kind of a structure of how you structure your class, what is the process when you choose cases?
1: I was so happy with the Brandless case because one of how timely it was. And then I think even, you know, after the SCJ case competition, it was still, it was it was interesting that we had studied it at the time that we did, right? I don't think that we could be studying it this fall, you know, now that it's gone up in the air. But what was really great about that experience was that we worked really closely with our MBA TAs, so our second year TAs, in picking the case and getting input from them. So we actually, I think, read through eight or 10 cases and narrowed in on the Brandless case. And and so this is with Doug Stamen, And I don't think either Doug or I had suggested Brandless, so it actually did come directly from one of our TAs. It was kind of interesting because with our SEJ judges, I was on the one hand, nervous that we were using this other consumer good company, a consumer package good company, but at the same time, I thought it was really great because this was a company they clearly thought about and had some some great insights in. And I also think it was a fun case. It gave students a lot of room to be creative and come up with different solutions potentially to the problem. and I actually think a lot of the the reasons that they brought up in their case analysis is probably why it ended up going under in the in the first place. So we're in the process right now of selecting. The case for next year. And so we're going to rely on RTAs again, hopefully for inspiration on what case to select.
0: I am excited to see what's next. Professor Woolley, thank you for being a guest on Present Value. It has been a pleasure speaking with you this and prior times.
1: Thanks. It's been so much fun.
0: The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Jonathan Tin, Eric Joe, and Paul Whitko from the Present Value team. I'm your host for this episode, Alex Vorwald. Music by Pottington Bear, logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.